Welcome to FinCast. I'm Juan Zarati, your host on this episode, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the role of sanctions, and the rupture of the international order. With me are two great experts, Brad Bowman and Katya Hazard. Welcome to FinCast, episode 33. Why isn't the administration moving harder on sanctions? There's more of a military solution to this than most terrorist financing issues. Organizational structures as a key component for helping to develop confidence. White knights of illicit finance are a myth. They don't really exist. It's a direct attack on the on the money laundering vulnerability. President Putin's reaction to any of these allegations in the past has been prove it. Welcome back to FinCast. I'm very happy to be with Brad Bowman and Katya Hazard to talk about the unfolding events in in Ukraine with the Russian invasion. Incredibly tragic moment for the international community, obviously for the people of Ukraine, presenting major questions for the international system and some important questions in the sanctions domain. And again, I'm incredibly pleased to be with Brad and Katya, who are great experts and will talk us through the current events and in the issues. For the listeners, we all know that events are changing by the minute. And so we're going to be recording this, understanding that by the time you listen to the FinCast, events may have changed on the ground. But we are hoping to give you insights that are relevant beyond the current moment. For those of you who don't know Brad Bowman, Brad is one of the great experts in Washington and the country on political military issues. He's the senior director for the Center on Military and Political Power at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, a longtime senior national security advisor uh, up on the Senate for the Armed Services Committee and the Foreign Relations Committee, former U.S. Army officer, a Black Hawk pilot, so he knows what combat looks like deployed to Afghanistan. And he's also Professor Warrior. He's uh, been an assistant professor at West Point and is one of the great thinkers in this space. Brad, we're very happy to have you on this FinCast. Juan, I'm, I'm so honored to be here with you and, and Katya, and, and thanks for that intro. About half of that's accurate, but uh, I, I'm excited <laughs> to have this conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. And, and Katya Hazard, my friend and colleague at K2 Integrity, Associate Managing Director who helps run our sanctions program for the firm and for all of our clients. One of the deep experts on sanctions that we rely upon and our clients rely upon started her career as a lawyer at Clifford Chance, where she advised clients of all sorts and sizes on the nuance of OFAC and Bank Secrecy Act related regulations and policies. And she's a Russian by origin, and so is following very closely all of the issues in, in Russia and Ukraine. And Katya, for any of your family or friends that are caught in the middle of this, uh, obviously we share our sympathies and hope everyone's doing okay. Thank you, Juan, and thanks for the invitation. I wish it was under different circumstances, but it is what it is, so I'm here to help navigate the myriad of sanctions regulations that came out recently. Absolutely, and, and the sanctions world has turned incredibly complicated and also interesting for those of us who watch the space. But let's, let's start with a level setting. Brad, I'm going to turn to you first. Putin has shown his hand. He's invaded uh, Ukraine. The U.S. warnings turned out to be accurate, despite those that were claiming the intelligence community had it wrong. The West has responded with sanctions, with weapons to Ukraine, more troops to the Eastern NATO bloc countries, certainly calls for Putin to uh, withdraw or to stop his advance. 
but we have Russian troops and forces on the march toward Kyiv. Brad, can you give the listeners a sense of what's been transpiring and, and what's happening on the ground? Thanks, Juan, for the question. Absolutely, I'll try. You know, there's, you know, the the events are moving so quickly, right? Anything I say now, as you flagged a moment ago, uh, might be less relevant uh, in hours or days. And we have the the persistent fog of war, which we often talk about, where it's it's difficult to determine from a distance what exactly is happening. Even people on the ground don't know what's happening a mile or two over. And often the first report that you hear is inaccurate. So with all those caveats. Uh, here's the bottom line, is that uh, Vladimir Putin, for months, assembled extraordinary combat power, roughly 200,000 combat, combat support, combat service support troops on most sides of Ukraine, Belarus in the north, along the Russia-Ukrainian border in Russian-occupied Crimea, and, and commenced a massive, multi-pronged, combined arms assault, unlike anything we've seen in Europe since World War II. As we speak, without getting too wonky, you basically have two pincer attacks taking place. The first pincer, you have one axis of attack of that first pincer coming from the Crimea. How interesting that they're launching an assault on Ukraine from Russian-occupied Ukraine and Crimea. And the other leg of that pincer, if you will, is coming from the northeast from Russian territory. Meanwhile, Russian-backed separatists and Russian forces in the Donbass are fixing or holding in place Ukrainian forces. And so that the goal of that first pincer movement is to isolate and destroy as much as possible of the Ukrainian military in Ukraine's east, where most of Ukrainian forces are postured. Because we know that one of Putin's primary goals is to demilitarize or de-arm as much as possible Ukraine, easier said than done. The second pincer movement is coming from the north from Belarus. One uh, leg of that pincer is coming down one side of the Dnieper River, one uh, leg is coming down the other. They are focused like a laser beam on Kyiv. The goal of this assault is to overthrow the democratic, duly elected government of Ukraine. Let me say that again. We see the largest military conventional attack since World War II from an authoritarian aggressor whose purpose is to overthrow the democratic elected government in a major European capital. In the coming days, we're going to see fighting in Kyiv. Putin's goal, I think, is to decapitate the Ukrainian government and most likely replace Zelensky with a Kremlin stooge. These are the easiest days, I would say, for Putin. It's only going to get harder. I just described the bad news. The good news is that the proud people of Ukraine are fighting. The Russian uh, military forces are taking casualties. And sooner or later, they're going to defeat a lot of the Ukrainian conventional forces. But I believe that if Putin intends to put a Kremlin stooge in place in Kyiv, that they will have to keep Russian forces there in some sort of occupation capacity. And, and those forces will be targeted by Ukrainians fighting to keep their country free. Brad, that's an incredibly dire but succinct uh, summary. And I, I do want to get to what comes next in the question of a Ukrainian insurgency and the rest. But, but let me just ask you this question. Because you, you've been warning about this for months, but were we foolish or, or were elements of the international community foolish to think that Putin wouldn't go in? Was this sort of a preordained plan uh, by Putin that wouldn't be affected by anything, the threat of sanctions, the movement of troops, anything to deter him? What do you think? You know, my rearview mirror, mirror is crystal clear. My crystal ball is foggy, uh, like everyone. So I don't want to be one of these guys who say, oh, I had it all right from the beginning. But you know, I, I was warning for a long time. I remember advising U.S. senators back in the 2014-15 timeframe about some of this. And I was warning that uh, if past is prologue, 
that we were going to see aggression from Putin, that he was going to try to accomplish his objectives at the negotiating table. I prayed and hoped that the U.S.-led transatlantic alliance would not give in to Putin's request, which I think would have been a fundamental betrayal of our interests and principles. We did not. He is a threat is a combination of military capability and political will. He assembled the capability and then he made the decision. It would seem that he decided early last year that he might do this, and now he's done it uh, despite warnings. This is not like, you know, when I was making these predictions and others were as well, you know, this is, wasn't just like fantasy, right? We have a history to look at. We have the 2008 invasion and occupation, occupation of Georgia. Let me remind listeners that Russian forces still occupy portions of Georgia. We have the 2014 invasion and illegal annexation of Crimea. We have the Russian-backed separatist movement since 2014 at Donbass, where roughly 14,000 people have died. And now we have the largest assault in Europe since World War II. Are we seeing a trend here? He invades, occupies, and bullies his neighbors, and he will go as far as he can as much as we give him. And the strength or weakness of our response, I believe, will determine whether we get more of the same. And my greatest fear is that he will be so emboldened or so supercharged on this neo-Zar desire to reconstitute as much of the Soviet Union as possible that he may push beyond Ukraine. That's why I believe the Biden administration is wise to beef up our posture uh, in the Baltics, in Poland, Romania, uh, and in the Eastern Mediterranean Black Sea. Well, I think you're right, Brad. This is a moment where, again, the, the international order, not just in Europe, but internationally, is sort of being challenged, if not ruptured. And we've got to test our assumptions as to what the boundaries of, of power uh, really mean, especially in, in the context of what Putin's done and been willing to do. Katya, you know, a major response, even back to 2014, was to put in place a sanctions regime to use sanctions to, to pressure certainly pressure in the 2014 context around the Minsk agreement to get the Russians to, to, to back out of Crimea or at a minimum to deter further adventurism. And certainly we saw the debate in the run-up to the Russian invasion to whether or not sanctions could be effective as a deterrent tool. Although President Biden in a recent press conference admitted that he didn't think that would really work to uh, to stop Putin from from going in. But in any event, let's talk about sanctions, because sanctions have, has taken center stage as the tool of choice to respond to what's happened with a ratcheting up of different measures. Can we start with some basics for the listeners? Can you give the listeners a sense of what sanctions are in place and how you think about the sanctions regime that we now see facing Russia? Yes, Juan, and I just wanted to piggyback on what Brad said before. I think the response in 2014 was relatively soft with regard to Russia, and it gave Putin the sense of you know, impunity since the Crimea activity and Georgia activity. You know, he tried Russian military forces in Syria. Unfortunately, there was zero response in that context as well. So I think he got this idea that no matter what he does, he can continue doing it. And I'm afraid at this point, I'm, I, I have to agree that the entire piece of the European community is under attack because he may not stop. And it does seem that he's acting very irrationally. In terms of the sanctions response, the first sanctions we, we saw were rolled out on Monday, February 21st. The first, the first sanctions were relatively muted as well. The Biden administration obviously designated the Luhansk and uh, Donetsk regions, which were recognized by Russia as independent. UK the following day designated a few Russian oligarchs and a number of Russian banks. And I think everyone in Russia predicted those designations, so I don't think they had that much of a bite. 
Unfortunately, the situation has developed very quickly and the situation is very fluid. So we, we saw rounds and rounds and rounds of designations from all sorts of U.S. governments, uh, agencies, U.K. Uh, on the U.S. side, the new sanctions that have been rolled out now include sanctions against Sparebank. Just by word of mouth, even though there is a wind down baked into the Directive 2, I've heard that a lot of banks are stopping processing Sparebank related payments because no one, you know, no one wants to be caught on the, on the wrong side of doing things. I've also seen, obviously, designation of VTB Bank, Bank of Crisia, uh, a few other Russian banks as DNs, meaning that their assets are immediately blocked. UK and EU may follow with similar uh, designations. UK on their side, for example, designated three Russian banks that have been known to operate in Crimea. There's a laundry list of Duma representatives, government officials in Russia, and a few other oligarchs and cronies. I think the list is very limited at the moment. My position has always been like, if you want to hurt the most and at the same time avoid the impact on the regular folks is to designate oligarchs. They No one keeps assets in Russia. They're all in different accounts in Switzerland, Cyprus, European Union. They do like their yachts and London flats and Miami penthouses. So I think that's realistically where the sanctions can hurt the most. If I'm a regulator, that's where I will focus. And you're right, Katya, the, you know, the Panama Papers, Pandora Papers have revealed where these assets sit, including assets perhaps that may be tied to Putin through secondary parties holding assets in his name or by proxy. So I, th- I think you're right. Let me ask you this question, because you described a whole litany of things. And there was also the prohibition on trading in Russian sovereign debt post-March 2nd, which is which is important and I think you're right. What we're seeing in the market is a conservative approach, right? Because there's so much complexity and nuance to how these sanctions play out, especially with a spur bank or VTB, that institutions in the West are being really conservative and just sort of fence ringing generally around any risk. But do you think, do you think what's happening here is there's a fear of blowback in terms of what sanctions are put in place, for example, in the energy sector? And also, do you think there is a desire to still maintain some escalatory dominance or some headroom into further measures that could be taken? So, for example, the designation of Putin himself or or these kinds of things. How are you thinking about, in some ways, the progression of sanctions as we look forward? I mean, everyone understands that we have to be very careful with energy companies, right? Obviously, Nord Stream 2 is a no-go now for both from the German perspective or from the U.S. perspective. But the EU continues to be dependent on the Russian gas. So I, I don't think it's feasible that at any point US or EU will impose blocking sanctions or asset-based sanctions on the Russian energy companies, just because they're a major lifeline for many EU businesses as well. And let's not forget, the world is also trying to shake off the, all of the economic downturn because of the pandemic and all of the countries are struggling with the increased inflation rates, so the increases in any gas prices or oil prices will immediately trigger subsequent roll-down effect. So it's hard for me to predict from the energy perspective what's going to happen. There was a number of limited debt equity-related finance designations on the down new Directive 3, which resembles very much like Directive 1 under Executive Order 313.662. I think those are effectively the same type of designations. Again, we, we need to be careful 
my personal opinion, if you want to make sanctions effective and at the same time not cut Russia completely off the economic system, because there are 175 million people living in that country as well. And as much as everyone wants to believe, not everyone is supporting Putin. And there's a lot of people whose livelihood is on the line because sanctions will hit them first. And to give you a very easy example, one of the companies designated yesterday is a major supply for my dad's business. So I know it's going to affect him firsthand. Again, I think to be meaningful, the sanctions need to target oligarchs and the massive wealth that has been amassed abroad and really go after, even if you designate Putin, it doesn't mean that the effect will be immediate, right? But at the same time, there's been a lot of investigations published online and you can find a lot of information on where his assets are, who his bodies are. And those are really the people we should be targeting. Katya, just to echo what you're saying. I've called for a long time, especially post-2014, for sort of an international effort and a call for the the recovery of assets that are directly or indirectly controlled by Putin. And, you know, things like seizing yachts of the oligarchs that sit in the harbor in Barcelona or in Cyprus or in Panama should be part of the process as as well as looking at these institutions. I, I do want to turn, Brad, to you on this question about reliance on sanctions. And we'll touch on Katya's point about unplugging the Russians too much from the financial system. This this goes to the debate about whether or not the U.S. should be pushing for Russian banks to be unplugged from the SWIFT bank messaging consortium and system. And for those who don't know, SWIFT is in essence the switchboard for the international banking system, right? It, it allows the banks to communicate with each other and to not have access to SWIFT is uh, in many ways to be cut off from those communications and transaction channels. And in 2014, Brad, you may recall this, the Russians indicated twice, senior officials said that if Russian banks were taken off the SWIFT system, they would consider it an act of war. And so this question of of whether or not the bank should be de-SWIFTed, how much the Russian economy should be isolated to Katya's point is front and center. What do you think about that? And what do you think about the reliance of sanctions to carry the burden of the response to Putin? Thank you for the question. I I approach this this welcome question cautiously because I am talking to two sanctions experts, for sure, leading experts, and I am not one. But I I do focus on policy and strategy. and, And so in that context, I think about how we as Americans working with our allies can better integrate all tools of national power to achieve desired objectives. So I think of sanctions in that context. And I think a consistent systemic problem for the United States, we're not alone in this, but certainly for us, is a failure to do just that, a failure to integrate all tools of national power, as General H.R. McMaster often says, to achieve better results for the American people. I believe, with full deference to both of you, sanctions are a, a fundamental core tool in our tool bag that can and should be used as effectively as we can. I do believe with deference again to you both that the sanctions that have recently been imposed are significant. In the first 24 hours or so, I was very concerned that we were just going after the republics. I thought those were pathetically weak. I'm so glad they've been strengthened. They're clearly implementing an incremental approach. And they're also throughout this process seems to me kind of been employing, if I may, uh, a Goldilocks approach, you know, not, not, not too hot, not too cold, not too hard, not too soft, right? And why would they do that? Well, you don't want to go too soft or too cold, right? Because then that weakness invites, I think, additional aggression from Putin. 
But if you go too hard, right, the argument goes, I'm not sure I buy this, but the argument goes that you've got nowhere else to escalate to. And so you've maxed out your deterrence and Putin says, okay, that's all you got. And then he proceeds. And so I think the Biden administration and a good faith effort has been trying to strike that, that balance. And I respect that. But I do, again, with deference to you both, I do, I do worry that, that Putin long ago, and I don't have evidence for this, it's informed speculation. I do worry that Putin long ago said, I'm going to get hit hard via sanctions if I do this. And that's fine. Because what I want to accomplish in Ukraine is more important. You know, these sanctions will come, they'll go, maybe, maybe in five years, maybe in 10 years, but in 40 years, Ukraine is ours. And, and I will be known as the person that got Ukraine back. And, and so I think history is full of examples of where people said, fine, you want to sanction me? Fine. The people suffer. I'll continue to enjoy my yachts and palaces. And, and meanwhile, I've accomplished a, a greater grand strategic objective. And so I do worry that Putin has discounted sanctions. And, and so in that context, it feels to me, and, and I say this you know, from the comfort, safety, and prosperity of the Washington, D.C. greater area, and I regret how sanctions often hurt the most vulnerable in countries rather than the thuggish rulers who rule over them. I do worry that what we currently have on the table in terms of U.S.-led and, and European sanctions are disproportionate to the moment. If you believe what I'm saying and, and what you said, Juan, and which I agree with, that we are, we are encountering the most fundamental challenge to NATO since 1945 or 49, that this is an existential threat to the rules-based international order. If you believe that, if that's not just overinflated rhetoric and we really believe that, I do not find arguments persuasive that they should not be off swift right now and that we should be going after energy companies. I understand why Biden doesn't want to do that, right? Because foreign policy has to be defensible in a domestic political context and Biden doesn't want the, the consequences of the gas pump. But this is where our leadership comes in. This is where American presidents have to explain to American people the stakes. And, and I do worry that while the current sanctions regime is strong, it's not strong enough, and we may pay more in the long run as a result. Yeah, Brad, I, I can't help but comment on what you said because it's really important and insightful. It's been interesting that the president and the administration have been very clear as to what we're not going to do, right? We're not going to send troops in. It's been a sort of re-emphasized point. We're, we're going to manage the price at the pump from the podium in the White House recently, you know, emphasizing that we aren't going after the energy sector, right? So signaling quite a bit for domestic political purposes, I think what we're not willing to do. I think there's, there's also from the sanctions perspective, it's been a blessing and a curse. Sanctions have been incredibly effective in application over the last 20 years or so. The curse is the, the overweight expectation that they can you know, change regime behavior fundamentally, perhaps even on their own, which is, you know, they're not a silver bullet and, and they have trouble doing that. And to your point, when it's an issue of regime survival or identity, national identity, these kinds of economic measures become externalities to those leaders. Think of the nuclear program in North Korea. Think of Ukraine and territorial aspirations uh, for Putin. Think of Taiwan and China, right? These are elements of national identity, which overpower commercial concerns. And I saw video of Putin meeting with industry leaders in Moscow on Friday, the 25th of February. And they were, they were asking for some measure of relief or at least 
an ability not to be cut off from the international system. And Putin, in essence, indicating that the steps in Ukraine were necessary and that the international community realizes that if Russia remains a part of that community, that system won't be threatened. But if they're cut off, it perhaps will be threatened, which I, I took as a very clear indication of both a threat and a strategy in terms of defense. Katya, can you touch base? Because, because so much of the debate now is swirling around SWIFT and whether or not to take the Russian banks off of SWIFT and um, criticism of the administration for not having done that yet, some being quite reticent to do that given the systemic implications, even concerns, Katya, about whether or not you start to push Russia and China into creating an alternative to SWIFT or alternate payment systems that circumvent the Western-based model. What's your thinking on the SWIFT debate and, and how listeners should be thinking about it? Right. I think there are two issues with cutting Russia off SWIFT. First is there's a large number of American, EU, and UK businesses operating in Russia. If you cut Russia off SWIFT, it means it's immediate, immediate termination of any inflow or outflow of funds or assets to from Russia. So you will be hurting your Western businesses that are legitimately in the country, operating in the country. And how do you do that? And how do you explain it to your, to your wars? Like why, why would, to give you an example, I've heard of uh, multiple businesses in, in, in Russia who was just scrambling and they have no idea what to do because all of a sudden their landlord became designated or their bank became designated and they still have assets there. So that's, I think that's question number one. Question number two goes back to the energy. If the SWIFT has cut off, I think it also immediately means Gazprom will cut off gas to Germany. Because if, if we cannot get paid for what we send you, why would we send it in the first place? So I think it's a, it's a very nuanced game at this stage. Um, it will have, in my mind, nuclear type of consequences just for regular Russians because... As you know, as, as you mentioned in your discussions, there are certain industry leaders who met with Putin and they tried to voice their concerns. And Putin basically said, tough love, prepare for a bumpy ride. Again, he I don't think him sitting in his ivory tower will be affected by sanctions any moment soon, but it will affect livelihoods of Russia. And you know, let's not forget, like a medium income in Russia right now is about 50 to 75 dollars a month. It's very hard to survive in the country on, on those money. And, if, you know, you also have expats who are sending money back home and they will not have that ability to do that any longer. So, again, systemic consequences. That's why I think there's so much debate whether it's worth doing at this at this moment. Brad? Yeah, no, uh, thank you. And, and there's just so much nuance there and you both understand it all more important than me. And, and, I, and I, I'm cognizant of the fact that what I'm suggesting is very severe, but so, are the, so is the threat we confront, I guess would be my response. And, and so kind of a, as a theoretical question, you know, not necessarily to either of you, unless you want to take it, is that, is there any scenario where we would support adding Russia to SWIFT? Is there any scenario where we would go after the energy companies? I think we could probably think of some scenarios where we might want to do that. Well, if the answer to that question is yes, is the greatest military assault since World War II <laughs> not one of those reasons where you might do that? I mean, seriously? Uh, so, I mean, that would be, I guess, my first respectful response. And the second would be, you know, we talk about, and, and again, total, I keep saying it, but I hope you sense the sincerity, the total deference to you both. You know, we talk about whether sanctions are effective. 
Right. And, and for people who don't know sanctioned stuff as well as you do, and obviously most of your listeners are very well informed, but impact on an economy is not to me an effect of sanctions. That confuses ends and means, right? We're, the goal here is not to hurt the Russian economy, right? The goal is to achieve a different policy decision by Vladimir Putin. So we can absolutely slam economy and we can talk about that being effective, but that's not effective in my view. Effective is the different policy change and you both understand that well, but I just think it's important to keep that in mind as we, as we talk about this. And, and sanctions have failed up to this point to achieve that effect. The, the deterrence of sanctions failed, period. They failed and they are failing, present progressive. Uh, and, and then the last comment building on what you said, Juan, what I heard my, my short oversimplistic summary of what you just said is that some things are more important than economics. Some things are more important than pocketbook financial issues. And what are some of those things as we, as students of history, nationalism is one. The pride in vainglory of authoritarian thugs is another. I'm mindful of the example of when Pakistan was preparing to build the bomb and Bhutto said, we will go hungry. We will eat grass to get the bomb, you know? So there are instances in history where people, and of course, Putin's not going to eat grass, right? But, you know, he's happy to have the Russian people eat grass, the people that were protesting in Russia in recent days against what he's doing. He's happy to have them eat grass, I'm sure, if that secures his place as a neo-Zara who recovered some of the lost glory of the Soviet Union. So there, those are just two or three respectful thoughts I put on the table for you guys to tell me what I missed. <laughs> so. No, Brad, Brad, a fair point. And, and I think what I think what we're grappling with as a as an international community and certainly with in the sanctions world is this question of effectiveness and the recognition that there are grave limits to what sanctions can do in the face of brute force, brute power and nationalism. Right. And I also think there's sort of this false sense and you hear it often from Capitol Hill of sort of entreaties to what the Russian people will demand of Putin, which is almost irrelevant in the context of this. And so the Russian people may be hurt by the sanctions and thereby they will, you know, make entreaties to Putin and force him to change policy. That just doesn't work that way. Right. And so I think there are, there are real limits to sanctions. And I think that's part of it. I think there's also this question of what is the maximalist approach and when do you apply the maximalist approach with a sense that not only is there blowback to elements of a maximalist approach, but there are, there are then challenges to the on-ramp, off-ramp of sanctions policy in light of what happens on the ground. Frankly, the, the, the entirety of the Russia sanctions program was built, at least initially, off of that notion of creating on-ramp, off-ramps, right? The whole creation of sectoral sanctions themselves is a, is a function of that, all with the hopes that Putin would negotiate out of the sanctions and out of the mess. And so I think everyone's grappling with kind of what's the right contour and shape of the use of sanctions when the use of force in the face of force is not feasible or doesn't uh, seem likely. But let me, let me, we've got to conclude here. Let me ask you both kind of a question of what comes next conceptually, because things will change by the minute here once we end the, the, the taping. Katya, from a sanctions perspective, where do you think the U.S., the EU, the U.K. go with, you know, what comes next? What's, your, what's in your crystal ball? I think we can 
probably definitely see additional blocking and asset-based sanctions on major players in the economy. I don't know if all energy companies will be spared, but I, I can see some of them being designated. I also think that the list of oligarchs and government officials will grow longer as, as you know, as uh, OFAC and our EU counterparts prepare evidentiary packs and target people and maybe come through, you know, like, as you mentioned, Panama Papers and identify further and further links to the Russian elite. I honestly don't know what to expect with regard to the executive order 14024. I don't know if there will be new directives or if Directive 2 will be expanded, and so it's not going to be just Bank, but a number of other uh, banks. I think that's that's possible. I also think everyone in the industry is still trying to understand the effect of the export controls, because that was like one of the most comprehensive export control packages that we've ever seen uh, being issued at once. So kind of remains to be seen what, what are the restrictions exactly going to be on the export control side and how the industries will react. Katya, the one thing, the one footnote I would add that I think is significant is this question of how jurisdictions other than the U.S., uh, we've already seen it out of the U.K., restrict access to or conversion to their currency. That is to say, President Biden talked about cutting off Russia from the ability to deal in dollars, yen, sterling, euros. The U.S. is used to doing that in the context of cutting off correspondent banking or frankly, just brute application of SDN listing or, or other sanctions. It's not clear that other jurisdictions do that very well or have the mechanisms to do it. So I'm, I'm very interested to see what that looks like, because that could be very painful to the Russians if they can't access dollars, but they, they also can't access other currencies. So I think that's interesting as well. I, I agree with what you said. I think Unfortunately, we've seen how it really inspired in the Venezuela context, where inflation turned to be, you know, hundreds of percent. And yes, it will hurt Russia, but it will hurt Russian people the most, first of all. Thank you, Katya. Katya, before we, we leave you, um, in terms of financial institutions that have not been hit, what are some that, that could be on the target set if, if the U.S. were more aggressive? That is an interesting question because right now it's a web of different restrictions, right? You have blocking sanctions, I think, that apply to six or seven financial institutions. VEB was one of the key institutions for Russia. I think one entity that continuously gets dropped off different lists, from my perspective, is RDF, the Russian Direct, sorry, yeah, Russian Direct Investment Fund. That's kind of the investing arm of Russia and it's been massing different investments across the globe and in the Middle East and China. So potentially that could be a significant target. But on top of my head, I, I, I cannot think of any banks. I mean, they, they've already targeted the top five banks for different designations. Brad, what, what comes next in terms of response? What are you seeing? What do you think NATO will do, U.S.? What should be done? Thank you for that question. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I've learned a ton. Thank you. I, I guess I would just zoom back out, uh, maybe to conclude, if I may, one where I began, and, and by saying that you know the free people of Ukraine are fighting and dying to defend their freedom against an aggressor who is eager to establish authoritarian oppression. That may sound like overinflated Washington speak, but it's all true. It's extraordinary. Our children and our grandchildren are going to read about this and how we respond will affect what kind of world our children and grandchildren live in. I think it's that big a deal. And I think our policies 
our ends and means should be aligned. And right now, I don't believe they are. What should we specifically do? Uh, you said that was kind of vague. Let me be specific. The Ukrainian defense minister is pleading. I think that's the right word, pleading for additional Stinger missiles, these missiles that can shoot down aircraft and uh, rotor wing and fixed wing aircraft, pleading, begging for additional anti-tank missiles. I, it's still unclear to me as someone who's no longer get cl getting classified briefings, whether we're providing the Ukrainians real-time battlefield intelligence, including, and I say, you know, I don't say this in a cavalier sort of way, but including intelligence to target invading Russian forces in Ukraine. I, I hope we're providing that. If not, we should be. Shame on us if we're not. I think we should continue to reinforce NATO's eastern flank. And with deference to you both, I think we need to escalate our sanctions pressure, which I think is mismatched with the moment. And the last thing I will say is that everything I just said, if it's all implemented perfectly, as I suggested, it may still not change Putin's behavior. Those measures may fail. Okay, but let's test the hypotheses and let's remember, let's remember that China, Iran, and North Korea are watching. And the strength or weakness of our, our response will inform their decisions about whether they want to use military power to accomplish their political objectives. Brad, you've, you've painted a, quite a dire picture and an accurate one, I think. And to you and Katya, I want to thank you for your insights. It's quite a somber and sober episode of FinCast, unfortunately. Uh, but hopefully it was understandable and interesting and important for the listeners. Well, that's it for this FinCast, episode 33. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you learned something. We, we hope you join us on the next episode. Thank you for listening to FinCast. We hope you join us for future episodes. Have a great day.